We are on the 14th message of a series called The Rebuilders. This was meant to be the last message. It's not. <laughs> um, just too much good stuff still, still to do um, as, as I've thought about this. Um, and, and this morning's message is one of those where you get in the car and we're going for a drive. And when we get there, lots of things will come together. And you need to pay attention on the way through. So give yourself a shake. Give the person beside you permission to elbow you if your head starts bobbing around. We're going somewhere. Um, it's one of those messages that you might want to listen to again after a while. I don't know. Um, I find my favorite movies are the ones when as soon as the credits roll, I think I have got to watch that again as soon as possible. Because at the end, I then have realized lots of things that were going on the whole way through. So I need you to be plugged in. I think you're going to enjoy the message. I actually put the, the bones of this message together about 10 years ago. And have refreshed it and revisited it. And this is a really good place in this series to, to tie it in. This is a series called The Rebuilders. Inspired by a verse from Amos chapter 9 verse 14. I will bring... My people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. We have spent several months now in Ezra, in Haggai, in Nehemiah and looked at uh, the return of the exiles to Jerusalem after the 70-year captivity in Babylon. We've seen that under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. They have made some amazing progress and these guys teach us some wonderful lessons about leadership. But all three have ultimately been frustrated by the fact that even though they can rebuild a temple and they can rebuild walls and they can reinstitute the word of God, they cannot change the human heart. And the problem that we have is that the exile has not ended. Finished off last week telling you that we need another rebuilder. Our three key rebuilders on the building site of Jerusalem roundabout. 450, 500 uh, BC have not been able to finish the job. We need a rebuilder who can deal with the problem of the human heart. And before we get there, we have to go on a bit of a journey and find out why there is a problem with the human heart and why we need a rebuilder to fix it. So let's start off in Genesis. I'm going to be uh, bouncing around a few different places in the scriptures. Hopefully you'll, you'll be able to Keep up. I've put as much of it as I can up on the screen here to help you out. Are you okay? Are you still awake? Are you excited? Yeah? See the heat came back on? We got the heat on? Not good? If anybody starts getting heavy-eyed, it'll soon be going off again. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. This phrase, the image of God, is what we're going to really land on this morning. What does it mean to be the image of God? It's not physical. Uh, God does not have hands. God is spirit. And in the Bible you read what's called, big word warning, anthropomorphisms where God's action is described in terms of physical human bodies so that we can understand what he's doing but we're told that God is spirit 
So when we're made in God's image, it's not, it's not a physical thing. It's not like we physically look like he physically would look like. It's about his character. And right from the very first pages of your Bible, you find out that humanity is supposed to show the character of God on the earth. We are supposed to display what he is like. Other language that's used instead of image is the language of sonship. Israel in Exodus chapter 4 are declared to be God's son. And a son is supposed to carry on in this context in the ancient world the work of his father. Supposed to reflect what his father is like. So we are made in the image of God. We are the crowning glory of all the beauty that you take in in creation. Those blue skies that Ruth mentioned earlier and the birds singing. All the, 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 the beautiful things. We were Castle Wellen again yesterday and I just no matter how often I go I'm blown away by the sheer beauty all around. And yet God says... I am the pinnacle of his creation. We are the ones who are crowned with glory. We are the ones who reflect his image on the earth. And we're called to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. In, uh, in, in Genesis 1, 28, God wants the whole planet covered, filled with his images all over the place. And that's why we're told in the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20 verse 4 that we're not to make a carved image or as the old language would say a graven image because God's already got images. So we're not meant to get a lump of stone or or wood or whatever and carve an image of God. God is quite content with the image that he has. Humanity is the image of God and no more images are to be made. And the fact that all people are made in the image of God should really affect how we treat one another. I'm not going into this because it's a, it's a digression, but this inspired Martin Luther King and it's inspired many others. The fact that humanity is made in the image of God. Be careful how you speak about people. Even really annoying people, be careful how you speak about them. Even really evil people, they're still made in the image of God. The image is fallen and it's marred and it is defaced. And even on very simple terms, I get annoyed when I hear kids talking about footballers and saying, oh, he's such and such. And they use a sort of a slurry term. And I'm like, no, he's not. He's made in the image of God. Be careful. You might not like him. You might not like the shirt he is on. You might not like the fact that he just scored against your team. But he's made in the image of God. So don't say that about him. Be careful how you speak and how you, how you treat people. Every human being on this planet has got indescribable value because we are all made in the image of God. And in a temple, one of the things that we might come to next week is the fact that a, in, in an ancient temple, the last thing that you put into a temple was the image of the God. And, and here you know, we're leaning in a little bit into ancient mythology and imagery that, that would have been used by other cultures in terms of how they created their temples and what they did with the images in their temples. And what I'm about to tell you here, I owe to others. I didn't just figure this out by reading the Bible one day. Okay, I, there's people like Rick Watts and a lady called Catherine Beckerleg. Uh, who have done a lot of work into this and I have learned from them. And, and again, what we're doing here, we're going somewhere. Stuff that you're going to hear now that in about hopefully half an hour at the most, <laughs> um, it's going to come together. 
And, and here's, here's what they did whenever they made these ancient images to put into temples. They would craft the image. And where would they craft the image? Frequently, they would actually manufacture the image in a sacred garden or forest. All right? So think about our creation story. And, and it's not hard making the connections. The image itself created in a garden. And then there would be a process of animation. Right? This is nothing to do with cartoons. This is about a ritual process by which the image was brought to life. And so that you know, picture the stone image or whatever, and they went through this ritual of opening the eyes, opening the ears, opening the mouth, and animating the limbs of the image. Now, specifically those four things, and hold on to that because we'll come back to it. The eyes, the ears, the mouth, and the limbs. And here's how they did this. Are you ready to be grossed out? I'm glad you've had your breakfast. Uh, but they would actually have rubbed spittle on the eyes and the ears and the mouth of the image. That was part of the ritual. Spittle. Now hold that. You might need it. Okay. And this, this was the, it was called the mispay ritual. And, and it was a standard ritual to, to, to bring or, or to animate, to cause an image in their ideas to come to life. And then finally, the image was indwelt. They did another ritual and they believed that whenever they carried out that ritual, that the spirit of the God came into the image and made it fully alive. So they created their, they made their image in a garden. They went through this ritual of animating it and allegedly bringing it to, to life. And then they said that the spirit of the God comes and indwells the image. And again, you can hear that in the background of our creation story in Genesis. In chapter 2, verse 7, God formed a man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the ruach of life, Hebrew. Breath, spirit, wind, all the same word put into his nostrils the breath, the spirit, and the man became a living being. So, so first point, mankind, men and women, are made in the image of God. But the image falls in Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree and saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye, you know what, you see that phrase over and over again, when she saw and it was desirable. It's the same thing for Samson when he sees a woman that he shouldn't have been with. It's the same thing for David when he sees a woman that he shouldn't be with. When he saw and saw that it was desirable. You get this over and over again, but that's, that was for free. And pleasing to the eye. Also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the question is, would, would humanity live in union with God who has created them in his image? Would they eat from the tree of life or would they choose to live independently from God and decide themselves what's good and what's evil? Decide what, what, what they want to do without listening to God. Listen to the serpent and eat the fruit from the tree that they were not meant to eat from. And it has the most horrendous consequences when humanity lives independently of God, the consequences are huge. Just think about it. We are made in the image of God to turn and walk away and say, I'm going to live independent of the one in whose image I am made has devastating consequences for a human being. And you don't have to go very far to see it. In Genesis 3, 
the Lord God banished them from the garden. Now, that's the first exile. We've talked about exile an awful lot in the past few months and even in the past few years. This is the first experience of exile for humanity. Banished from the garden of delight, the garden of Eden, separated from God because of their sin. Ultimately, it led to death. That's the fall of the image of God. And then a bit further on, we read in Exodus that God brings them out of Egypt and out of slavery. There's a lot, obviously, that goes in between, but we have to travel fast this morning if we're going to actually, you know, be done while it's still Sunday. God rescues his people. He gives them his law and he brings them to a promised land. He brings them back into a place, a geographical location, like the garden. He brings them back into into a place and he gives it to them. And in his law, he gives them, I'm not going to give you the whole Ten Commandments, but here's a rough summary. No other gods. No carved images. Honor the Sabbath and treat people well. Okay? So your first... First few there uh, in a bit of detail, and then the last half a dozen are all about how we treat other people. No other gods, no carved images, honor the Sabbath and treat people well. But you know what? It wasn't very long until they messed it up. These are, these are the things that he said. This, you want to stay in the land? You want to be my people? These are the things that, that are important. And in Exodus 32, the people come to Aaron and say, come and make us gods they give him his ju- their jewelry, and it says that he took what they handed him and made it into an idol. What was that? No other gods, no carved images. And he makes an idol in the shape of a calf, and he says, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And they're straight away into idolatry. And the pattern that we see from Exodus for centuries after that, is that they did worship other gods. They did make carved images. They did dishonor the Sabbath. And they did mistreat other people. You read the prophets in, you know, in that time period between the, the Exodus. You read the, the, the prophets, the kings, the judges. You read those stories and you'll find how much God is concerned about how people treat the poor. The stranger, the alien in the, in the land. And over and over again, the people did these things that God had told them not to do. And all of that together then led to the exile. Just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, now God's people, Israel, are exiled from the land. And as we know, they go into Babylon. And the glory leaves the temple. A lot of this is review. A lot of this is recap in order to get where we want to go this morning. The glory has left the temple. And we read in the Psalms of something that that Bible teachers sometimes refer to as the idolater's curse. The idolater's curse. In other words, this is what happens to those who engage in idolatry. Now I'm telling you, these are some of the most important verses in terms of understanding Jesus. And, and, And without offending anyone who's not that familiar with the Old Testament, get familiar with it. You will not fully grasp Jesus if you do not see him in the light of what went before him. (laughs) 
and the culture that he was born into and the culture that he came out of and the God that he is. If we do not have a handle on the Old Testament, we're going to miss so much of Jesus. So much. Listen really carefully to to these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 115. Talking about idols. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. Now, think back to that image made in the garden and the eyes, the ears, the mouth, the limbs, the way that the the image was, was brought to life. Psalm 115 verse 5. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. The psalmist is describing the idols. Can you picture the stone statue? Whatever. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. That's the idols. That's how the psalmist describes the idols that God's people have been worshipping. There's another, there's a similar passage in Psalm 135, and I'm just going to tuck in at the bottom of the screen here another phrase that comes from it. There's no breath in their mouths. Okay? So the idols, the stone statues, God, this is how God describes them. And then he says, and this is the, 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 the key, he says in verse 8 of Psalm 115, those who make them will be like them. The curse of idolatry is that you will become like the thing that you worship. We are supposed to worship God. (laughs) We're supposed to worship King Jesus. And as we walk through this life, we are supposed to become more and more and more like him. If we choose to worship idols, then we will become like them. Now, that does not mean if you worship money, you're going to turn into a 20-pound note. But what it means is it's it's an issue of the heart. Remember the problem for the rebuilders. They couldn't change the hearts of the people. And this is an issue of the heart. And what happens to those who worship idols, what happened to Israel... In those in-between years from the exodus to the exile, as they worshipped idols, in their hearts they, they cannot speak. They cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot walk, and there's no breath in their mouths. The image of God is becoming marred, defaced. It is becoming now like the idols that they worship. No breath in them, no spirit in them. It's a sad picture. And they've got a heart of stone because what sort of heart does an idol have? God talks about his people having a stony heart. They have, there's a reason you have a stony heart. If you worship an idol, that idol, simply speaking, if it's made of stone, has a stone heart within it and your heart will become stony as well. A heart of stone as the result of idolatry. It's a pretty grim picture. This is where the image of God has got to. It has now been recreated in the image of the idols that they have chosen to worship. And you add on to that other things as well in your Bible that are pictures of sin, like leprosy. 
used frequently as a picture of sin. And what does leprosy cause for people? Those who are lepers have to live outside the community and tell people that they're unclean. The leper lives in exile, once again, separated from God, separated from community. Add to that the fact that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians that behind idols lie demons. And you've got a really grim picture of where the image of God is. It's blind, it's deaf, it's mute, it's lame, it's leprous, and it's demonized. That's humanity without God. Have you seen it? (laughs) That's humanity without God. We were made to see God and to see the world as God sees it. But because of our idolatry, we become blind. We can't see God anymore. We can't see his goodness all around us. We can't see his beauty in creation. And we can't see other people the way he sees them. I do get vexed when Christians talk in really derogatory terms about other people because I'm thinking, what's wrong with you that even though that person has annoyed you, you still can't see that person the way God sees them? Where's the compassion and the grace? We've lost our vision of God. Blindness was never healed in the Old Testament, ever. Deafness, we have lost the ability to hear God. We're no longer in tune with him, hearing his voice. And we're not hearing the cries of the world the way God would hear them. Frequently in the Bible, hearing has got obedience combined with it. That to hear someone is, is not just to sort of be aware that, that they've said something, but it's to, it's to hear and obey. Deafness is never healed in the Old Testament. Mute, unable to speak, were the only thing in all creation that has been given the gift of intelligent speech because that's so fundamental to the character of God in whose image we are made, that he speaks And we are, because of our idolatry, we become mute. We no longer speak to him and we no longer speak to others on his behalf. It's never healed in the Old Testament. In fact, those who spoke on God's behalf, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, miracles had to be performed in their mouths. God had to send angels to touch their mouths and and to enable them to be able to speak on his behalf. The lame, the image can no longer walk with God. Walking in in Jewish culture is a euphemism for living. Your walk is your life. And because of sin, the image is no longer walking with God because of idolatry. It's become lame. It is leprous, exiled, cut off. Only two people in the Old Testament are healed from leprosy, Miriam and Naaman. And neither of them are touched. They're healed by having to go through a ritual in Naaman's case. And demonized. There are unclean spirits. This is Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. God breathed his spirit. (laughs) Ruach. He put his spirit inside the image and the image became alive. And now because of idolatry, God's spirit does not indwell his image. His image is indwelt by unclean spirits. It's a mess. (laughs) Humanity is in a complete mess. And ultimately death, the image of the living God, dies. It was never designed to die. And there's a promise of restoration for these exiles. 
Their idolatry has led to all of those things. Now you maybe feel for Nehemiah last week who lost it and started hitting people (laughs) because they wouldn't behave the way they were supposed to behave. We don't endorse such behavior, obviously, but maybe now we understand it. That's the sort of people he was working with. There are promises of restoration given to the exiles. So, So have we got it so far? We're made in the image of God. Idolatry has marred the image of God, so it is blind, deaf, mute, lame, leprous, demonized, and ultimately dead. That's where we're at. (laughs) That's where we're at. That's the state of the people in exile in Babylon. Isaiah brings them a promise or writes a promise to them even before the time. And the promise of Isaiah 35 is strengthen the feeble knees. The feeble hands, sorry. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. (laughs) Boy, that's good. Your God will come. But then you stop and think, did he come to Babylon? The exiles returned and he stirred up King Cyrus and and he, he put things into the heart of Nehemiah. But did he come? At that point in history. Did the glory return? No it did not. So this message comes to those who are in exile. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now listen to this promise to the exiles. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Four things never healed in the Old Testament. And God says to the exiles who are in this state, not physically, but spiritually, they are in this state because of their idolatry. Like if you say to me, I I don't see people the way God sees them, I'm going to tell you, you need your heart restored. You need touched. If you tell me, I haven't, I haven't heard God in years. I have no idea what it means for, for God to prompt me or speak to me through his word or, or whatever. I'm going to say, you need, need restored. If you say, my walk with God, I'm, I'm lame in my walk with God. You need restored. This is the state of the people and this is the promise that God gives them in exile, that all of these things will happen. And then the same thing, another promise comes in Ezekiel. Listen to it. It's really important. Really important for understanding Jesus. The message to to the exiles from Ezekiel, I will take you out of the nations. So he took them out of Israel and drove them into the nations. He now says to them, I'm going to take you out of the nations, gather you back from all the countries, bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. The problem is the heart. The heart is in the state that it's in because of idolatry. Because people have worshipped that which is not God. I will give you a new heart. Zerubbabel can't. Ezra can't. Nehemiah can't. God can. And I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone. The heart that's been hardened by idolatry. I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you. That's the promise to the exiles. But you have to then ask, did it happen? (laughs) 
Because I think Ezra would say no. And I think Nehemiah would say definitely not. (laughs) These people came up and they were not restored in their hearts. There was no spirit in them. There was no new heart in them. They were hard work. Despite the best efforts of those guys, the rebuilding was ultimately not a success because they could not rebuild the human heart. We need another rebuilder. We need another rebuilder. We need one who can end the exile because the exile did not end. I've told you that so many times, I don't want you to ever forget it. The exile did not end with Ezra and Nehemiah. Physically, the people came back from Babylon to Jerusalem. In their hearts, they were still in exile. Their hearts were stone cold dead. They were not indwelt by the Spirit. The glory had not returned. And they were still, with respect to their relationship with God, they were still blind, deaf, mute, and lame. We need one who can end the exile, transform the heart. Do we know anyone who specializes in these particular conditions. (laughs) Because we need another rebuilder. We need someone who can do what people in the Old Testament couldn't do. Heal the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame, the leprous, and the demonized. Who will fit the bill? We need a son. Israel, the son of Exodus 4.23, that was supposed to represent God, failed. We need a son who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We need, according to Eugene Peterson in Hebrews 1.3, the son who perfectly mirrors God, the perfect image of God, because every other image of God is flawed by idolatry. We need a perfect image to come and restore us. And whenever we read the Gospels, we read about Jesus doing loads of mighty deeds, miracles. He healed everyone who came to him. But yet the Gospel writers only record certain things. And I think they chose them carefully. We do not read of him, to my knowledge, healing a headache. Or toothache. Or a severed artery, or a chest infection. We don't read of those things. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Because it says he healed all who came to him. So why did the gospel writers sit down and decide, we're going to focus in on a few particular things that he healed? Here's a quick run through the examples. Mark 8. They came to Bethsaida, Some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village when he had spat on the man's eyes. Hmm. wonder what he was doing there. That always freaked me out. (laughs) That was If you're asked to do a reading in school or in church and you got that, When he spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, did you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking about. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. The image can see again. The image that was blinded by idolatry can now see because of Jesus. And the spitting thing 
in case you ever wondered, is marrying that ritual of bringing an image, opening the eyes of an image. That's why he did it. Still in Mark in chapter 7, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. Can you imagine prayer line at the front of church and you see someone else ahead of you getting prayed for and you're like, I'm out of here. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not going to draw a crowd. He touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosed and he began to speak plainly. The image can hear again. Never healed in the Old Testament. But Jesus healed loads of blind people, loads of deaf people, and the image can speak again. So because of idolatry, couldn't see, couldn't hear, couldn't speak. But because of Jesus, the image is being reanimated, restored, brought back to life. What about the other one? Mark chapter 2, the lame man is brought and set before Jesus, lowered down through the roof. Jesus saw the faith of his friends. He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, is Jesus saying to this poor guy in front of everybody, because of your sin, you are in this state physically? No, I don't think he is. I think he's teaching all of us that the state of the heart is due to sin and is due to idolatry. And this guy is physically lame But humanity is spiritually lame until Jesus comes and touches us and forgives our sin. Later on, he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. The image can walk again. Your sins are forgiven. Start walking with God. Those four things, the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame, not healed in the Old Testament. Moses did miracles in the Old Testament. Elijah did miracles and mighty deeds, some of which Jesus also did, but none of them did this stuff. None of them did this stuff. And this is likely what the Pharisees wanted. When they asked Jesus for a sign, they were probably asking him, can you do some Moses stuff for us? Can you do some Elijah stuff? And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to do God stuff because I am here to restore the image of God. I am a rebuilder and that is my specialty restoring the marred image of God. What about the lepers, those who are exiled? Mark 1, Mark gets this, because Mark is heavily based on Isaiah. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched. Didn't tell him to go and bathe in the Jordan seven times. He reached out and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. The image has been cleansed of sin and can return from exile and be in community once again. The exile is over. It did not end with Ezra and Nehemiah. It did not end in the 400 odd years after them. It ended with Jesus. He is the one who brought people back from exile. What about the demonized? Mark again. Just then, a man in their synagogue was possessed by an impure spirit. He cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus 
of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The image is no longer indwelt by unclean spirits. It never was meant to be. Do you imagine how it grieves the heart of God to see his image indwelt by an unclean spirit? They should never have inhabited the image. And what about the dead? So we've seen the blind and the deaf and the mute and the lame and the leper. What about, and the demonized, what about the dead? John 11, and if you've been around for any length of time, you'll know that this just rocks my world. <laughs> In John 11, Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus because the image was never meant to die. There's lots of reasons, I think, that are coming together here in Jesus weeping. I think he's weeping because he sees the pain in humanity that has been caused by death. He sees the others weeping and he's not angry with them. He's weeping because death was never meant to happen to the image. And it has happened. And it is hurting other images. And Jesus stands and weeps at the tomb. And he's deeply moved. Deeply moved. He comes to the tomb, which was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God, which never returned in Ezra Nehemiah, but has returned now in Jesus. The exile's over. The glory has come back. And he stands at the tomb and I, oh, come on. As the, two, as the stones rolled away, he stands and he looks into that tomb and he sees his image, cold, dead, lifeless. And he's furious. And he says, Lazarus, come out. The image is alive again. The image can see, the image can hear, the image can speak, the image can walk. The image has been cleansed and can come back from exile. The image has no longer got unclean spirits in it. The image is alive. You who were dead in your sins have been made alive with Christ. And what about spirit? One of the sad verses back there in the Psalms in Psalm 135 said about the, those who had been impacted by their own idolatry. There's no breath. There's no spirit in them. The spirit of God that was put in them. There's no spirit. The promise from Ezekiel was, I will put my spirit in you. And the fulfillment in Jesus was on that night in the upper room when he had the 12 and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The image is now once again indwelt by the spirit of God. And if you think that that is limited to spiritual gifts or some other work of the Spirit, we're going to do a series in between now and Advent. We're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit and look at all of those wonderful things that the Spirit does. But if you limit that, you're missing it. The indwelling of the Spirit is to bring life to the image so that we can truly represent who God is in a vast array of things, not in a limited number of things. Let me quote Rick Watts. 
What made the image come alive was the presence of the Spirit of the God indwelling the image. That is essential to the Christian life. The gospel, listen to me now, because this is the gospel that you get in evangelicalism a lot. The gospel of believe in Jesus and have your sins forgiven is only half the story. Having sin removed will not enable you to become a true and authentic bearer of God's image. Only the indwelling spirit can do that. Jesus is the one who carries out the restoration of the image of God. We need another rebuilder. (laughs) We need one who can transform the heart. He is the fulfillment of these verses in Ezekiel that we've read already about giving us a new heart, a new spirit, putting God's own spirit within us. And I'm finishing off now. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison and he's a bit ticked, you know, because he's confused as to whether or not Jesus is the one. Are you the one who is to come? Should we expect someone else? Because John's thinking, you know what, dude, I'm in prison here. And if you're the one, you really should come and bust me out big time if we're, and, and get me a throne and set up your kingdom and get on with it. And Jesus sends the response back to John, the evidence that he is the one who ends the exile, who brings the kingdom. The evidence is this. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus is restoring the image of God. That is his rebuilding project. One of his projects. We'll look at another one next week. That's why Ezra Nehemiah ends in failure, because only Jesus can restore the human heart. And the implications for us, if we have encountered this Jesus, then we need to show the world what God's like. What we're saying is, as a Christian, what we're saying to people is, I have been restored back to the image of God. And the responsibility then of how we live and reflect that to those around us is huge. Some people get all bent out of shape about God's will for your life. God's will for your life is to reflect Jesus' character to the world around you. And it doesn't matter whether you're a teacher or doctor or dentist or nurse or whatever you are. God's will for your life is wherever you are, reflect the character of Jesus as a restored image bearer to those around and to bring his restoration to them. Because this world, as soon as you go out of this lovely, safe place, you will be rubbing shoulders with images that are not restored and that need restored. And our, our, our gospel is to bring the hope of restoration and a new heart and a new spirit to all around us. Let's pray and then let's worship the rebuilder.